and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we were looking at debates over the humanity and divinity of Christ, what it means to say that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. And initially there were two sides of this debate. There were the people over in Antioch in modern day Syria who were saying he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, like we just said, but they are totally united in one person. And then there was another side over in Egypt in Alexandria that would say, yes, yes, he has, he's fully divine and fully human, but that is one human divine nature after they are in union. So the human nature, the divine nature come together as the baby Jesus, and he is just one person. There's a lot of back and forth about this, a lot of ink spilled, and eventually in 433, the two sides come together and they say, maybe we're kind of saying the same thing. We can definitely agree that there are two natures, there's the human and the divine, that he is absolutely just one, and that he's basically consubstantial with the Father and his divinity, so he's just as God as God in his divinity, and he's consubstantial with us in his humanity. He's just as human as us, maybe actually more so, in our humanity. Fully God and fully human. Let's shake hands. Let's go our separate ways. Sorry we made a big deal over this. But then, 30 years later, unfortunately, all those parties who were in agreement are dead. And you have a new generation of theologians who are not so sure that they're saying the same thing. So in Constantinople, you have a new kind of diffident, introspective archbishop, and he's not taking a lot of grand stances. And the archbishop of Antioch is kind of in the same boat, but the archbishop of Alexandria still has sort of hurt feelings over this. He was a big Cyril of Alexandria fan, and this new archbishop, Dioscorus, he really wants to say, we shouldn't have signed this peace thing. We should just insist that the way we do theology in Alexandria, this is the true way to do theology. And anybody who's not articulating things as we have articulated them is probably just doing it wrong. So Dioscorus, he's unhappy in Alexandria. In Constantinople, this new, diffident, kind archbishop comes to power. And This is a time when Theodosius II is still reigning, he has a very long reign, and he is still basically doing whatever other people tell him to. So initially he has this phase of life where his sister Pulcheria holds the reins of the empire, he does whatever she says, then his wife takes over, and his wife holds the reins of the empire until 433 when he may or may not have caught her having an affair and she is kicked out, she's sent into exile. And after she leaves in 433, you get a court eunuch named Chrysopius. And now, just like Bulgaria, just like Theodosius' wife, whatever Chrysopius says, that's what Theodosius does. So there's a search for a new archbishop, and Theodosius is thinking, hmm, who should be Archbishop of Constantinople? And Chrysopius says, I know just the guy. So he tells Theodosius about him. He says he'll be fantastic, gets him appointed. He becomes Archbishop of Constantinople. 
And Chrysophius, the court eunuch, sends him a note. Dear Archbishop, wonderful to have you. So glad you'll be serving here with us in Constantinople. I hope you recognize that I'm the one who pulled the strings, who got you appointed as Archbishop of Constantinople. You have me to thank for being the patriarch of this great city. And a little gift would be appreciated. And so this kind Archbishop thinks, oh, a gift. Well, I should I should send this court eunuch the most precious thing I have. And so he goes into the tabernacle of the church, the holiest place, and he pulls out the sacrament of Holy Communion, the body of the Lord, and puts it in a little box and has it sent to Chrysopius. There it is, the most precious gift I can give you. And Chrysopius sends it back. And he says, I would, sir, have preferred gold. So Chrysophius is a pretty worldly guy, but his godfather is the opposite. He is this ragged, hermit-like, kind of interesting, strange monk named Eudaches. And in the way that Theodosius listens to Chrysophius and whatever he says, when it comes to theology, Chrysophius listens to Eudaches. Eudaches, he says, you are the boss. Like, you know theology, whatever you say goes. And he is one of these people who says, you know what? Cyril, the Alexandrians, they never should have compromised. They never should have said we're both saying the same thing because we're not. We're saying something really different. So Cyril's position often gets called the miaphysite position, a single nature. So for Cyril, Jesus, 100% human, 100% divine, no question, and they are completely united in this one person. That's the kind of basic Christian understanding. That's the apostolic tradition. But Eudaches wanted to take it a step, or a couple of steps, or like, you know, 600,000 steps further, and say, yes, Jesus is fully divine and fully human, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. So Eudaches wants to say, look, let's say you have the Atlantic Ocean. You have this giant body of salt water stretching out of you. And you have a little vial of balsamic vinegar. And it's got an eyedropper in it. And you stick your eyedropper into the vinegar. And you pull out a drop. And you drop one drop of vinegar in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, technically, the Atlantic Ocean is now a hybrid of vinegar and water. It's vinegar water. But really, it's one drop of vinegar in the whole Atlantic Ocean. It's not like someone on the other side of the ocean is going to go swimming and be like, hmm, water's kind of vinegary today. Like, the drop of vinegar does nothing to the ocean. And so, Eudicis says, if you combine humanity with divinity, what happens? Humanity, limited by time and space, teeny tiny, lives a short life, not very impressive. Divinity infinite, eternal, gigantic, huge. Like, if you put a drop of humanity into the ocean of divinity, it's not like the divinity gets a little human-y. It just disappears. It just dissipates. So, yes, technically, Christ. Totally human, totally divine, but the humanity is completely lost among a sea of the divine essence. And so, once again, we get rationalism. We get reductionism. We get this perspective that, you know, the way it's been stated for so long, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Let's break this down. 
Let's make some sense out of it. And a big chunk of the church says, oh, that makes so much sense. That's fantastic. You finally like solve this puzzle. This paradox isn't a paradox anymore. And the other half of the church says, that's not even Christianity anymore. Like you just made this thing up that makes sense from a human perspective. But that's just because you are a human thinking a human idea. That doesn't mean that that reflects the nature of God, which is impossible for us to wrap our minds around. One of these people is this kind, nice, communion-sending Archbishop of Constantinople. He hears what Eudicis is preaching, and he says, Eudicis, that is nuts. That is not Christianity. That's not the apostolic tradition. Please cut it out. And this position, Eudicis' position, is called monophysitism. Monophysite, one nature. So it's not single nature. It's not just like, oh, the humanity and divinity are totally united in this one person. Instead, he is saying, Jesus is basically just divine. Like the humanity, that's the drop of vinegar in the ocean. It's not there. You can't taste it anymore. You can't smell it anymore. Jesus is just divine. Let's kind of forget the humanity point because that's just a technicality like the drop of vinegar in the ocean. So sometimes you'll hear churches of the East, and we'll get to this later, but sometimes you'll hear churches of the East, like the Coptic church in Egypt, or the church in Eritrea, or the church in um, Armenia, or the church in parts of South India, referred to as monophysite churches. But they are definitely not. Like, none of those churches at all agrees with Eudicis that Jesus is just divine, not really human, because humanity is like a drop of vinegar in the ocean. That is a dead position after the period we're going to talk about. So, if you ever hear someone referring to those churches as the monophysite churches, it's worth correcting them, because that is deeply offensive to folks from those churches. They are miaphysite saying there is one nature in Christ of this perfect union of humanity and divinity, but they are not monophysite, saying he's basically just divine and the humanity part is kind of a joke. More to come on that subject later. So this nice Archbishop of Constantinople censures Eudicis, and he says, you can't say this anymore. Look, I'm going to give you some stuff, and if you can agree to these orthodox positions, if you can agree to the formula of peace or whatever it is, then you'll be okay. But if you're going to keep preaching this stuff, like you got to stop preaching in Constantinople. Meanwhile, the Bishop of Alexandria, Dioscorus, he hears about this and he says, oh man, you are one of those uppity Constantinopolitans once again messing with the Alexandrian position. And again, what we do in Alexandria is always right. Eudicis, he clearly learned from the Alexandrians. He is riffing on Cyril, admittedly, in a kind of weird way, but don't censure him just for taking an Alexandrian position. And so Dioscorus is up in arms. Eudicis is his uh, ability to harangue crowd is hanging in the balance. The Archbishop of Constantinople wants to say, I mean, what I say goes, it's my diocese. And so they have to have a council. And this is the Council of Ephesus in 449. It's not a gigantic council. They write to Rome and say, will, you, will the Bishop of Rome, the Pope come? Will some bishops from the West come? And the Bishop of Rome says, it's not a big council. I'm not going to come. I'll write you a letter. Instead of heading for the Council at Ephesus, Pope Leo writes this book called The Tome of Leo. 
Uh, he doesn't really write it. He assigns it to his secretary, Prosper. And Prosper gives basically the Western opinion on all this stuff, which is Eudicis, totally wrong. Don't listen to him. The Bishop of Constantinople was right to censure him. But Dioscorus is the one running the council. So this book, the Tome of Leo, the long letter of Leo, is delivered to the council, and it's given with great flourish by these three Roman legates. They say, here is the statement of the Pope. Please read this aloud to the council. Dioscorus says, I just put it over in the corner. It never gets read to the council. The council progresses. It gets more and more Eutychian, Eutyche's position that uh, the humanity of Christ is like the vinegar in the ocean of his divinity. This gets articulated and formulated, and everyone's getting more and more worked up about how fantastic this is. Meanwhile, the Roman legates are just sort of like shouting out exclamations in Latin. Uh, Excuse us. Uh, well, no, no, that's wrong. I, that, that can't be right. Oh, what are you talking about? And people just completely ignore them. So they're kind of bulldozed over, and it's really uh, Pope Dioscorus defending Eutyches, and that's the whole council. At the end, the poor bishop of Constantinople is deposed, and not only that, he's thrown into jail. And just for good measure, they're like, and the bishop of, of Antioch, Damas, let's also depose him. So you have these two guys deposed, one jailed, you have Eudicis roundly defended. The bishop of Rome, the pope, Pope Leo, hears about this, and he says, that was not a council, that was a latrocinium. That was a den of robbers. However... Mere months later, the eunuch falls from favor with Theodosius II. I don't know what he did, but it was something bad. And Theodosius says, you're out of here. You no longer work for me. Go get a job at Burger King. So for about 25 seconds, Theodosius II is like, I am the master of my own destiny. Nobody tells me what to do anymore. And then he gets a call from his sister, Pulcheria, and she's like, Theodosius, I heard you kicked out the eunuch. And he's like, yeah, could you come over? I just, I don't even know what to wear today. What, what should I have for breakfast? Help me make some decisions. And Pulcheria says, no problem, brother. I got you. So his sister comes back and she is once again in control of the empire. That same year Theodosius is out riding, he has a terrible horse accident, he falls off his horse, falls on his head, dies, and Pulcheria takes over not as shadow ruler, but as actual empress of the Roman Empire. She takes a soldier, a veteran soldier, for her consort, and the two of them are now in total control. Pulcheria is an Orthodox Christian. She has been siding with the Orthodox all along. She thought Eudicis was nuts. And so she sends him into exile and for good measure has the eunuch Chrysippus executed. She is so horrified by what happened at Ephesus that she actually calls yet another council in 451, the Great Council of Chalcedon. This council's whole raison d'etre is basically to say no to Eudicis. So they overturn everything at Ephesus and they put together what's called the Chalcedonian formula. So basically the definition of Christ's divinity and humanity as it comes from the Council of Chalcedon. And that is that Christ is perfect God and perfect man, consubstantial with the Father and his Godhead and with us in his manhood. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly that idea from the settlement of 433, the settlement of peace that both Alexandria and Antioch said, yes, that's what we're talking about. That's what we believe. So they lift the basic core of that settlement and they bring it into this Chalcedonian formula. 
It continues, made known in two natures. So two natures, two nature Christology, Christ is both divine and human, without confusion, change, division, or separation. And this is actually coming from, this next part is coming from St. Cyril of Alexandria. So they're pulling in Cyril here and they're quoting him. The difference between the natures is in no sense abolished by their union. So he's still fully divine, fully human, not a drop of vinegar in the ocean, but just 100% human, 100% God. And then the next part they draw from the Tome of Pope Leo, the, the letter written by Pope Leo to the council at Ephesus. The properties of each nature are preserved intact, and both come together to form one person and one hypostasis. And there are some for whom this definition just doesn't work. It's felt that it ignores Alexandrian Christology, it ignores the way Cyril phrased other aspects of this, and it was kind of a slap in the face to Alexandria. And so a division of bishops at the Council of Chalcedon, they walked away. And they say, you know what, this no longer represents who we are. Over the following decades, these churches, the Church of Egypt, of Eritrea, of Ethiopia, which at the time were united, the Church of Armenia, one of the ancient Christian groups in India, these gradually separated from communion with all other groups, with all these groups that identified as Chalcedonian. In part, it was because they felt that this Chalcedonian definition might lead to the heresy of Nestorius, Nestorianism. Nestorius, of course, is the one who said that you kind of have the cosmic um, inscrutable Christ and the man Christ who are kind of working together as partners as opposed to just being one person. And they were like, we don't want anything that's going to lead to that sort of confusion. So over time, you get the birth of what's called the Oriental Orthodox Church. So this is this this communion of Ethiopians and Eritreans and Coptic Christians from Egypt and Armenians and these various groups who are apostolic, who are ancient Christians, who are extremely orthodox in their faith, and yet are not Chalcedonian. Don't sign on the dotted line under this Chalcedonian definition. For a thousand and a half years, the saints of the Coptic Church and the Ethiopian Church and so forth were condemning the saints of the Orthodox Church, and the saints of the Orthodox Church were condemning the church, the saints of the Armenian Church. So you have this kind of somewhat negative relationship happening in certain times and certain places between the Oriental Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics. And it really took until the mid-20th century for theologians to get together from the Coptic Church, from the Ethiopian Church, from the Roman Catholic Church, from the Anglican Church, from the Eastern Orthodox Church, to sit down at a table and say, wait a minute, we're actually still saying the same thing. This is still basically the idea behind that peace formulation of 433, that Jesus is fully divine and fully human and definitely one person, not in any sense two people. We are saying the same thing in different language. This created a general sigh of relief from all parties, but it's been going on so long it's hard to make the reconciliation immediately more official. Just personally, I spent some time in an Egyptian monastery 
And I thought we were going to sort of have to tiptoe around the subject of Christology and agree to disagree. And it was going to be kind of awkward. And so this monk and I sat down and he was like, okay, let's hash it out. And each of us raised every personal fear, every personal objection to Chalcedon or not Chalcedon or whatever. And at the end of the conversation, we were both just like, yeah, we are saying literally exactly the same thing in different language. That is the essence of the miaphysite position, which is that Christ is one nature after the union. He's fully God, fully human. They're united in the one person. It is in agreement with the Chalcedonian formulation, but uses very different language to get there. So we kind of agree to disagree on the usage of the language, but at this point, all of us are pretty much clear we are saying the same thing. That is not the case for the monophysite position. Mia like Mia Pharaoh, good. Mono like mononucleosis, bad. So the monophysite position, that is strictly Eudicis. That is this idea that Jesus really isn't human because the humanness is so watered down by the divinity that it's the the drop of vinegar in the ocean. And it's really the only the ocean that counts. That's the only thing we're interested in. So this Eutychian monophysitism is roundly condemned not only by Chalcedonian Christians like Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, non-denominational, Pentecostals, Eastern Orthodox. They condemn, we condemn, monophysitism, but also the Oriental Orthodox condemn monophysitism just as roundly. It is a heresy from everybody's perspective, and it is... Really, I don't know anyone who is a monophysite these days. So when Oriental Orthodox are called monophysites, they very justifiably say, you don't know what you're talking about. We are not monophysites. We are miaphysites. Totally different tradition. So if you hear someone calling an, an Oriental Orthodox person a monophysite, it's worth correcting them because that's just wrong. For those of us not in the Oriental Orthodox tradition, for all those in Chalcedonian traditions, which includes all other Orthodox, Catholics, Anglicans, Protestants, everybody else, basically, this Chalcedonian formula is kind of the last word on the relationship of the divinity and humanity of Christ. This is the formula which really describes what it is to believe in Jesus and what we believe about Jesus. It's both descriptive in saying he is of one nature with the Father. He is consubstantial with the Father, and that he is of one nature with us, consubstantial in our humanity. But it doesn't pick it apart. It isn't rationalistic. It doesn't explain all that away. Instead, it leaves space, it leaves room for that mystery. Because above all, the incarnation is an inconceivable mystery. It's a description of the action of God becoming a human being, and then humanity being elevated to the heart of God in Jesus' ascension. As such, Chalcedon really becomes one of the two most important of the four first ecumenical councils. So you have Nicaea, the origin of the idea of the ecumenical council, the place where the Nicene Creed has begun and starts to take form. You have Constantinople, which completes the Nicene Creed, which adds in all of the information about the Holy Spirit and what we believe about God the Holy Spirit. 
You have the First Council of Ephesus, in which they deal with the question of Nestorianism and some other issues. We have the Second Council of Ephesus, which we talked about today, but that's not actually one of the ecumenical councils. That's really only recognized at that time by Alexandria. It's not the rest of the church. So most of the rest of the church says not an ecumenical council definitely does not count. So one is Nicaea, two is Constantinople, three is Ephesus, and then four is Chalcedon. So what else happened at the Council of Chalcedon? Well, you have 28 canons passed. There is one that condemns simony. So if you're like, hey, I'll give you $600 if you make me a bishop, that's condemned by the church. You can't pay to be ordained. You can't pay to have ecclesiastical office. And it's called simony after Simon the Magician in the book of Acts, who tried to get the apostles to give him the Holy Spirit for a fee. There's a canon which commends monastic life, the life of monks and nuns, as being this virtuous, wonderful, holy life, but says if you're using it as a pretext to just foist your agenda upon people, it's really obnoxious and everyone wants you to knock that off. And so... They actually say you cannot found a new monastery without the consent and the support of your local bishop. A monastery has to be under a bishop's authority. There's another canon which stipulates that if you are ordained as a priest or a bishop, or if you have become a monk, then that's your life. And if somebody offers you a position of great secular authority, like governor of a province, Or if someone offers you a position of military leadership, you have to reject those. You are no longer eligible to serve as a statesperson, nor as a military leader. This has been a great out for some younger sons of kings who had their throne hijacked by someone else. Rather than just executing the sons, you can make them monks, and they're ineligible to be your competitor for king down the road. So good for those sons. Another canon stipulates that strange and unknown clergy persons, without letters commendatory from their bishop, who just show up in a city and say like, hey, I'm a priest, I want to join in the service, are prohibited from presiding. You have to actually know that this person is a priest in good standing in their own diocese before you can allow them to preside in your church. One canon says that no woman under the age of 40 is to be ordained a deacon. And this is kind of interesting because a lot of churches no longer ordain women as deacons. And yet in the early church, the assumption was that folks of various ages were getting ordained as deacons and uh, they had to restrict it to women 40 and up. There's also a clause which says if they marry after having been ordained deacon, then they give up their orders and are anathematized. Another canon stipulates if you kidnap someone to marry them, if you forcibly, in the language, forcibly carry off a woman, then if you are a clergy person, which, you know, I hope a lot, a lot of clergy people were kidnapping women, but um, if you kidnap someone to marry them, uh, you, if you're a clergy person, you will be degraded from your rank. You'll no longer be a clergy person. And if you're a lay person, you'll be anathematized, cast out, someone who cannot be part of the church. The council also very much codified the pentarchy, the rule by five, these great five bishops of the church. So it actually orders two of them. So it says that Rome is the greatest among the patriarchs of the church. The Pope is the first among equals. Doesn't mean the Pope's the boss of the church. Doesn't mean the Pope is the boss of all Christians, but he is the first among bishops. It's a place of honor and and spiritual authority. Second, it says 
is not Alexandria, much to the Alexandrian's chagrin, is not Antioch, and Antioch's like, wait, what? It's not even Jerusalem, which is obviously a thing, a place where a lot of important Christian things happen. Instead, it's Constantinople. And it's interesting, the text says not because it is the holiest city or because it's an apostolic foundation, but because it's the second most important city in the world. So according to the canons of the Council of Chalcedon, Rome is first among equals because he's the bishop of the most important city. Constantinople is second among equals because he's the bishop of the second most important city. Alexandria and Antioch are tied because they're both quite important. Jerusalem, well, you know, it's, it's a place you can go. You can see some really great stuff there. It's not important on the global stage in this era. In spite of the lasting impacts of a lot of these canons, including not kidnapping people to marry them, the primary uh, legacy of Chalcedon is really this Chalcedonian formula, this way in which we, as Christians, articulate who Jesus actually is, the, the level to which we're able to kind of delve into what it means to say that he is fully God and fully human, and the level to which we say that is inscrutable. It's mystery. It is above our pay grade, and we are called to worship that mystery rather than analyzing it and picking it apart. Next time, we'll be talking a bit about another one of the heresies we had to bypass quickly because it's a big subject unto itself, Pelagianism. So I hope you'll join me again for the history of Christianity. Christianity.